Good morning. Man, y'all are spry this morning. That's great. Sometimes y'all just kind of look at me for a second. That's great. Hey, we're going to be covering a lot of ground this morning in the book of Genesis. We're going to be covering chapter 42, chapter 43, chapter 44, and chapter 45. An opportunity for us to really uh, kind of wrestle with what's happening. Um, the story moves quick. The narrative moves fast. Um, but it really kind of settle in and wrestle with some of the undercurrents of Joseph's life. And, and, and I have to be very careful um, when, I, when I preach a, a passage out of a book like Genesis because the natural thing to do, because I am a Christian preacher in the 21st century, is to completely pull everything into what we know exactly right now. But you and I have to wrestle with the fact in a passage of scripture like Genesis chapter 42 to 45 that the original intended audience that would have read these verses, these chapters would have heard this narrative, they didn't know who Jesus Christ was. As a matter of fact, they didn't know who King David was. The original readers were those that came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses that, that God brought. These are, 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 are Hebrews, what we would now call Jews, that would read this for the first time. And so I cannot just blatantly impose everything that we believe on a passage because what that tells you is you can't get to Christ unless you infuse it on yourself. But... Keep in mind, when Paul, when James, the brother of Jesus, when Peter, when they were proclaiming the gospel in the first century in the book of Acts, they weren't reading from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were going to Genesis. They were going to the Psalms. They were going to Isaiah and to Ezekiel. They were going to these Old Testament Jewish writings to help us all see Jesus. So we're going to find Jesus when we get there. But we're going to look and see exactly what's going on in Joseph's life. Joseph is a phenomenal, a phenomenal person within the Old Testament. He's a phenomenal figure in the book of Genesis. I stand here this morning and submit to you that I believe that he is a type, one that would point to what we look for when we get to the Christ. And if you found your passage, we're going to read a few verses out of chapter 45 together, looking at the first 15 verses, uh, and we're going we're gonna to rest there and then develop the, the story, the narrative backwards from there. So if you found your place, let's read it together, starting in verse 1. Joseph could not control himself before all of those who stood by him. And he cried out, have everyone go out of here from me. So there was no one, no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt. But do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
for the famine has been in this land these last two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. But God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great salvation. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he, God, has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his household and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and all your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come. And you and your household and all that you have will be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that this is my mouth speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father here And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all of his brothers, wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked more with him. Let's pray together. Father, we look at your word. And we look at this man, Joseph, and how you exalted him. How he suffered, but then was brought in a position and a place to offer Forgive, for offer forgiveness and salvation and deliverance to those that had wronged him and those that were in need. May we come to Christ, the one who is exalted above all, and know that you have placed him in a position to forgive, to offer salvation and deliverance for us because we are in need, Lord. Help us to make much of Christ today. Help us to make much of Christ every day as we praise you, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This, this passage is kind of the culmination of what Joseph has been doing uh, around his brothers. Now, where we left off a couple of weeks ago, I know you enjoyed, those of you that were here enjoyed hearing Corey last week and as he has continued to grow as a preacher and, and the equipment, I, I, I love talking with guys that are, that are in seminary and have opportunities to go back home to preach. One, one of my, one of my, some of my most favorite memories as a, as a young budding preacher were being able to stand in my home church and proclaim. Now, I, I will let you know the very first time I ever preached in quote-unquote big church at my home church was a Sunday night. And um, some of you may know this about me, some of you may not, but um, I'm kind of a prankster um, and kind of uh, like to mess with people a a whole, whole lot. So that Sunday night as I'm standing up there to preach, um, the front two rows were filled with some of my friends who stared like this the whole time trying to make me nervous. I was already nervous enough, but they sat there just waiting on something to, to, to slip so they could. Uh, actually, one guy um, actually had made a sign and he was sitting there holding it. Um, um, and it said, don't mess up, Evan, because we will all laugh. And it said it in big letters. He sat right there in front of me the whole time, uh, all 12 minutes that that sermon lasted. Um, but, but since then, I had other opportunities to go home and preach at my home church. And I'm glad that we had an opportunity for Corey to come back from New Orleans to be with you last week um, because 
you are responsible for, for Corey, for, for praying for him as he grows as a, as a young uh, minister, as he grows as, as a preacher. You are responsible because many of you poured into him over the years as he was growing up in these very walls, as he was roaming these halls, as he was sitting in your Sunday school rooms, as he was uh, singing in your children's choirs, as he was part of your student ministry, um, as he was part of your mission trips. He, he's, he's us. And so I want to thank you for uh, allowing him the opportunity to come back and, and to, for encouraging him uh, last Sunday. Uh, where we left off with Joseph a couple of weeks ago, um, he had been sold into slavery by his brothers. He was in prison for something that he didn't do. Potiphar's wife accused him of sexual assault. It didn't happen, uh, but he was in prison for that. He was left behind by the cupbearer. But then Pharaoh has a dream, a dream of seven skinny cows gobbling up seven hefty cows, of, of seven scrawny wheat stalks taking over seven full wheat stalks. And he tells Pharaoh, there are going to be seven really good years of plenty and then there are going to be seven really hard years of famine where we're not going to have anything. So we need to spend some time storing up. And so it said there in chapter 41 that, that, that Pharaoh said, you know what? You're the man. And he elevated him and placed him on top above everything except for Pharaoh himself in Egypt and specifically gave him the charge of establishing all over Egypt uh, places where they could store grain so that in the seven years of famine, there would be plenty. And now we come to chapter 43. Excuse me, chapter 42. And it says this in the first couple of verses. Jacob saw that there was no that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, "Why are you staring at one another? Behold, I have heard there was grain in Egypt, so go there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die." We get into this passage and we see the famine threatening the covenant that God had made for his people. The famine comes in and it wasn't just a famine in Egypt. It spread across all of what we now call the Middle East. It was over all of the land. So much so that the covenant family, Jacob's family is sitting there. And Jacob looks at his 11 sons and says, boys, you can sit here and twiddle your thumbs or you can go find a place that's got some bread. You, you can sit here and just wait for, for something to fall into your lap. Or you can do something. Famine was threatening the covenant. Here's Jacob looking at his sons. And, and it's not in the text. And I have to make sure that I'm not uh, making an argument for silence. Or putting something there that's not really there. But I have to imagine for a moment that Jacob himself said, God... You promised you were going to prosper this family, that you were going to make us great. That you, Lord, I remember wrestling with you by the Jabbok, and you changed my name from, from Jacob to Israel. And, and here I am with these boys, and I've lost one of my sons. And what in the world is going on? There is no food in the land. God, are, are you, do you remember your promise, God? Do you remember what you said would happen? Do you, do you remember what you showed me? Because... Because I'm looking around and it's just not happening. That's a tough place to be. The, the, the doldrums of life where things are dry, where things are meek, where it seems like there's no way forward. And, and here's Jacob with his sons. He says, there's grain in Egypt. You boys better get down there and go buy. The market's there. It's not here. 
And it says that the 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt and Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. You remember Joseph was the favorite son? He was the, he was the son of Rachel. He had the coat and he had the dreams and he was the favorite one. And that, that's what brought the despise of the brothers that he was kind of the favored one. And, and then there's Benjamin who's the other son of Rachel, but Rachel died while giving birth to Benjamin. And so, so, so there's this, this kindred. Rachel was the wife that Jacob loved. He's the one that, she's the one that he worked for. He's the one that he really wanted to be with and she's gone and the first son's gone. And so he's not gonna let anything harm this one. So he sends the 10. And it's in sending out those 10 that we find Joseph in a position of authority. It says there, Joseph, verse six, was ruler over all the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Man, I, I, all right, I'm gonna put myself in Joseph's shoes for just a second. I've told you about my dream. It's going to come up. There's going to be all of you, all, all of you stars are going to be bowing down to me. Uh, all, all of you stalks of wheat are going to be bowing down to me. Yeah, they're like, what, we're going to worship you? So we're going to throw you in a pit. We're going to sell you. We're going to treat you like scum, like slime. We're going to sell you. And here it is. Joseph's looking. He's like, how about this? You boys thought you had the last laugh when you sold me to those traders. I heard Reuben save my life. I heard, I heard that conversation where Reuben said, we're not going to kill him. So you, you spared me, but you sold me. You don't know what my life's been the last 20 years uh, in Potiphar's house and in prison. And now here I am in Egypt. I'm the ruler of all. Look at you. You're down here bowing because I've got something you need. See, that's the me coming out in it, right? That, that, that's the us, the uh-huh, beat that chest. I told you so. But Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph realizes that his brothers do not recognize him. And why would they? He was probably around 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. Now he's probably pushing 40. So he's probably got a little beard going on. He looks a little different. And besides that, the last time his brothers saw him, they had ripped his robe off of him. And so he was just in his undergarment as he's being led off by some Ishmaelites into Egypt that he had just been sold. And now he's standing there in royal splendor. He's got the full garb. He's got everything. He's got, he's got the ornamentation, the robes. He probably has some sort of a regent's crown. He's got the ring on his finger. He's got the staff. He's got servants all around him. They have no idea who this guy is. And they come and they bow down. And he asked them, it says, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly and said, where have you come from? I said, we came from the land of Canaan to buy food. But even though Joseph had recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. He remembered the dreams that he had, but then tells them, you're spies. You are spies from the land of Canaan. You're coming to see what we have so that you can uh, launch some sort of a ploy and attack to steal from us because I know you're out of food and you're coming in here to do harm to us. And they're like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. And so they start telling the story. 
We're brothers. We have a father. There were 12 of us, but one of them is no more. And the other is at home. And and, and we're here just to buy food. And, and, And Joseph starts wanting to know more. I mean, good grief. These are his brothers. This is his family. So my father's still alive. What about the other son? Is he okay? He's okay. We're just here to buy food. Okay. Well, I know you're here to buy food. But do this for me, verse 18. I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in prison. And the rest of you take your food and go and bring your youngest brother back to me so that I may know that you are telling me the truth. And I'll let you all go. See, Joseph begins to test his brothers. He begins to see, have have these men really changed? Are they really all about themselves or, or is there something different going on in their lives? And they said, we are guilty, look at verse, verse 21. They said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. You ever have one of those uh-oh moments? Those, those man, I kick yourself moments? I had one of those this week. We're enjoying our vacation. We're at the beach and having a good time. And I'm out there on Tuesday around lunchtime, just a little bit before lunchtime. I'm out there in the ocean with, with Braden and uh, a couple of the cousins. And uh, I've got my glasses and I've got some of those, uh, those uh, handy sunglasses that go on over your glasses. And uh, I'm out there in the ocean and the waves are coming in pretty strong because it's starting to shift to high tide. And Braden's wanting to ride a little boogie board, you know, the one where you lay on it and you ride the waves in. And I'd surfboard the one you lay on. And so I'm out there, I'm pushing and having a good time. And we're having a blast. It's great, man. It's, it's phenomenal. And this wave comes as I'm pushing Braden. It washes my glasses off my face. And I reach down and I catch. I'm like, yeah, all right, we're good. We got them. And I look what's in my hand. The $10 sunglasses. Not the prescription lenses that help me see. Caleb, you can relate to this. You went through this at Snowbird. And my first thought was, okay, they gotta be floating around here somewhere. Now, here, what you may not know about me is I'm blind as a bat without glasses or contacts in. Um, we're, we're out there, I didn't have anything. Christy's talking about, look, see that boat out there? I'm like, nope. It's a ship, what kind of ship is that? I see water. I see sky, that's it. The kick myself moment came as I'm sitting there, not able to find my glasses anywhere. And I remember specifically, remember this very moment, Saturday morning as I'm brushing my teeth and putting my toothbrush back into the overnight case that's got deodorant and all that good stuff in it. There on the counter were my contact lenses. And I had the thought, I won't need those. I got the sunglasses I can wear over my glasses. I can just leave them here. They'll be okay. I 
could kick myself last Saturday morning for not picking up that case because then we're on the beach and think, well, I might have an, I might have another pair, another set in my bag. There might be some there in the hotel. But in the meantime, I'm calling an eye doctor that I'd seen in South Carolina a couple of years ago. Sorry, your prescription's expired. This is an emergency. I've got three small children on the beach. They could die in the water. I won't be able to see it. I need to go. I need contacts. I just want a trial pair of contacts. Well, if you could get your doctor to override, we'll give you a trial. And, I ended up having to go to the eye doctor to get a whole new thing and everything. It's great. I can see good now. But I could have kicked myself. See, here are Joseph's brothers. They could kick themselves even harder. He has put us in a prison cell. He's going to keep one of our brothers all because we wouldn't listen to Joseph years ago when he pleaded with us. And Joseph's hearing all this. They don't know who he is. They, don't, they hear this guy speaking Egyptian to them and they don't realize that he can understand their language and that he's knowing what they're talking about. And it says there, Reuben answered, said, did I not tell you don't sin against the boy? Here comes big brother. I told you, I could kick you for this. You might want to kick yourself, but I can kick you. I'm sure Christy probably thought as we were having to give up time on the beach on Wednesday to go to the eye doctor, I could kick you for not putting your contacts in your case. She probably thought that. She didn't tell me that, but she might have thought it. No, okay. They did not know that he understood. But Joseph turned and wept. He's hearing in his brother's voice. So what happens? Joseph sends them away. He fills up their sacks, fills them with all the grain, sends the ten brothers, nine of the brothers back. Simeon stays behind and he tells his chief of staff, put their money back in their cases. And so they're going, they're going to make a day's journey, headed back home. And they get there and they're opening, one of the brothers opens his sack and Judas looks and he says, wait a second. I paid the guy, but here's my money. The other eight brothers opened their sacks. We, we paid the guy, but here's our money. What is going on? I mean, think about the fear now. They've got to go back to dad, down another brother. But they can't go back to Egypt because they've got their money. This guy is going to put us all in jail for the rest of our lives for stealing the money, for getting the money back. But we didn't take it. I can kind of relate to Joseph here. Let's play a trick on him. They go back. They tell Israel all that's happened. They tell Israel, this is the man. This is how he spoke to us. This is what he told them. And Simeon's there and he's in jail. And Israel's response is, why in the world would you tell them that we had another son here? Because you're not getting that brother back unless I send Benjamin. And I don't want to send Benjamin. I am going to die if something happens to Benjamin. Why would you do this? But desperate times come for desperate measures. It gets to the point where the grain is gone again. The famine is still threatening the covenant. And as Joseph is testing his brothers, they are put up to an even greater test of faith in themselves. And so they go and they say, Dad, we've got to go back. And he says, okay, I know you've got to go back. Well, Dad, we can't go back unless we take Benjamin. But I can't send Benjamin. 
and then Judah. And Judah has had such a strong change of heart. He had the whole instance with Tamar that went south. It kind of caught him out. Judah was the one that was really pressing to get rid of Joseph. And he's the one that comes to his dad and says, let it be on me, my blood for his, if anything happens to him. So Israel sends them back. And he also sends them with the money that they took the first time that they ended up getting back because he's like, we're not taking any chances with this Egyptian guy. And they go back. They present themselves to him. It says, the famine was so severe in the land it came about they had finished the grain that their father said, go back. It says, verse 15, the men took the present. They took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. They rose and went to Jesus, uh, Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to those, his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay the animal to make ready for they are to dine with me at noon. And Joseph sees his younger brother, Benjamin there. And all he can think is, they've got to be at my table. There's something with my brothers. that uh, There's just this reuniting that has to take place. And they bring it in. But the brothers were still afraid. Notice what it says in verse 18 of chapter 43. The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in. And that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us, takes us for slaves and our donkeys. They thought their time was up. He is setting the trap. We're done for. And it says that they went to the house steward and says, my Lord, you've got to know something. We paid when we were here before and when we were a day's journey away. When we were there, we saw that the money was given back. We had our sacks full, but the money was there. We did not take the money here. We brought it back to give to you. And I want you to notice with me, verse 23. This is the answer of the house steward. The guy was in charge of everything for Joseph. He says, be at ease and do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you your treasure in your sacks. For I had your money. Think about that for just a second. We know what's going on behind the scenes, that Joseph makes the order and everything. But now it is an opportunity for this house steward to come and not rat out his boss, not to rat out Joseph, but to tell these people, do not be afraid. Sometimes you're going to find yourself in a position where you don't understand what's going on. And the one word, the one phrase you need to hear and let rattle in your heart is do not be afraid. For your God is in control. And so they start talking again. They start telling Joseph what's happened. They start start getting ready to go. And Joseph makes another order. Put the silver cup, my silver cup, in the youngest one's bag. And he sent him out. Why would Joseph do this? He sends him out, gives him a head start, and then tells his guy, go get him, because my cup's in his bag, and bring him back here. And they overtake him. 
And they get there, and it's like, well, our master silver is, le- is missing since you guys left. We're going to have to look. Man, you want to talk about fear. At this point, I think Joseph's just having fun with his, guy, with his brothers, right? And that's that's kind of what the kid brother does. I mean, he's the, the 11th in a line of 12. That's what the youngest brother does is, I, I can do that. I'm a third born. I'm the youngest brother. That's what we do. Any younger brothers in here? We're all the younger brothers. What's the most fun that you can do to your siblings, right? Mess with them. Annoy them, right? Drive them absolutely nuts. And here he is. We, why would we do that? Your master has been so gracious to us. Why would we, if you find it, then we will go back and we will pay the penalty, but you're not gonna find that cup here. And they found it in Benjamin's bag. And Judah. It says in verse 14 of chapter 44, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and Joseph was still there, they fell before him. And Joseph said, what have you done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? And look at Judah. What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Joseph says, far be it for me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he will be my slave. But the rest of you go to your father. Look at Joseph or Judah. And Judah approached him and said, my Lord, may your servant speak a word to my Lord's ear. Do not be angry with your servant for you are equal to Pharaoh. And he starts telling him the story. You asked about our family. You asked about the other brother. You asked about our father. And we told you, but you've got to know this son is special because his brother was lost and it was my fault. So let me take his place. Judah offers himself as a sacrifice for his brother. And it's in all that that Joseph couldn't handle it. It's in all that that Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. In our passage that we read earlier in chapter 45, Joseph cried out. He sent all of his servants away. It was just him and the 10 brothers. And he says to them, the 11 brothers, and he says to them, I am Joseph. Do not be afraid. Why why do we have this? Well, what is the purpose and the point of these four chapters? And where do they draw us today? They draw us to a position where you and I can look and see how God provides salvation through the exalted son of Israel. God provides salvation through the exalted son of Israel. Here we have Judah laying down his life as a sacrifice, but we have the exalted son, the one that became low, the one that was sold, the one that was in prison for wrongs that he had not done, the one that had been risen to a position of authority. It is only the one who can offer deliverance that does give deliverance. It is only the one who has the power that can offer forgiveness and salvation. And here, salvation, was offered through the exalted son of Israel because what you and I see is the true exalted son of Israel in Christ Jesus offering salvation today see Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him they bowed before him 
And it was not until the majesty decided, I am going to let you know who I am and why you are bowing before me, that they could enter into a relationship of a covenant with him. The same happens with us. You've heard the name of Jesus many times. You have heard of a savior. You have heard of this. But until Christ Jesus calls your name and says, I am the Lord to whom you must give an account. I am the one before whom you are bowing. I am the one that can save you. You will be left in the dark. And he calls to you even now to say, I am the Christ. You're not just sitting in a church pew. You have entered into the presence of the Lord Jesus and he, the exalted son of Israel, the son of God on high, offers you salvation. He offers it. You're like, well, where's salvation in all of this? Let's start connecting real quick and we'll walk through it together. First, you and I have to see in this that blessing is not just about me alone. See, this is how we get to the salvation point. Too many of us look for blessing for us. Too many of us look for self-adulation and self-exaltation. We, we talk about blessing and what happens to us and what happens for us and what goes on in our life and just, it all centers back to, to us. But blessing's not about you individually. It's not about me individually. Notice what happens here. Verse seven says this, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and keep you alive by a great deliverance or a great salvation. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God and he, God, has made me a father to Pharaoh. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. Here is Joseph, who has received probably one of the greatest blessings the world has ever known, pulled out of a prison cell and placed all over the house of Egypt. The only person greater in Egypt than Joseph at this point is Pharaoh, all right? Politics aside, politics aside, this would be like uh, five years ago before presidential races were run. This would be like you coming out of high school and being given charge of everything that Donald Trump owns. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of stuff. That's a pretty good blessing. You're like, man, I just graduated high school and I met this guy. He says, you want to come work for me? Sure, I'll come work for you. And you find out that he is a multi-billionaire. It'd be Warren Buffett coming to say, hey, you know what? I started this real estate agency over here. I'm interested in your house, but why don't you just take over my entire empire? That's a blessing, right? That's where Joseph is. Out of prison to the exalted place above everything. And he could have easily said, I've got it made. All I've got to do is just manage this stuff for Pharaoh and I am going to die a rich, happy man. My family's going to be blessed. That's not what it was about, was it? He says here in this passage of scripture, God made me a father to Pharaoh. God blessed me for you. God blessed me for all of you. The ones that despised me. The ones that rejected me. The ones that cursed me. The ones that sold me to preserve for you a remnant. And, and notice what he tells, he says, go back to dad and tell him to bring the whole family, 
all your wives, all your, everybody wants to have that rich uncle, right? I mean, Israel's family has the rich uncle now. I mean, the really, really rich uncle. You're all going to move down here and you're going to have the choice property in Goshen and you're going to thrive in this place. Why? Because blessing wasn't about that individual person. Blessing was about what God was seeking to do for his glory. Have you been blessed? It's because God wants you to use it for his glory. It's not about you. It's about him. It's about those around you. It's about how he comes to you to give you something to do in his name for his honor, his glory, not for your kingdom. And it doesn't matter if you make a few dollars an hour or if you are a multimillionaire. It doesn't matter if you, if you, if you are on a salary or if you're on a, a government stipend a retirement annuity. Wherever God has placed you, the blessing is not about you alone. It's about what he's doing around you. This is why the book of James starts talking about blessing and asking God in so many ways and says, you know, greed's what keeps you from getting what you actually want. You ask for it, but you ask wrongly. You ask for yourself. It's a check of motive. But second, we see that the exalted Christ reveals himself to me in order that I may trust him see these brothers were really really scared of what's about to take place in Egypt quite honestly they should have been they were in the dark all they know is what's in front of them we mistreated our brother we sold him to Egypt and while this is probably nowhere near related we're being mistreated they they, they kind of ascribe to like a karmic principle here trying to go a little karma on us listen Karma's fake. It's false religion. It's not real. So that's not what's happening. But what they do know is here we are. And somehow our money was returned to us. So they think we stole from them. Somehow the second time we come to get Simeon out of jail and get more food, Benjamin gets the cup. Benjamin says he didn't steal it, but it's in his bag. Now Benjamin's going to have to stay. We're in his house because he's just going to overtake all of us and we're all going to be his slaves. I mean, that's what they have in front of them, right? They're looking at what's black and white in front of them on the page right there. This is, this is, this is the script that they're reading. But things change when Joseph says, let me, know you, let me tell you who I am. I'm, I'm your brother. Our father's blood runs through all of our veins. Come closer to me. Trust me. This is what God has been doing. And the reason Christ Jesus reveals himself to you and to me is so that we can trust him. Because we are lying prostrate on the floor before the majesty on high and all we have is the weight of our sin. These brothers were in front of Joseph, not knowing it was Joseph, but in the weight of their sin, thinking that their sin had finally caught them. And we know that before Christ, we are guilty of our sin, but he reveals himself not as the judge, but as the savior in order that we can trust him and say, you know what? You have exactly what I need. You have the forgiveness and the ability and this great provision of deliverance you are offering to me. 
But the question that you and I have to ask is, do we trust that? Do do we trust that he is the one that can give us what we need? Do, Do we trust that he is the one who can save? I was reading earlier this week in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 33. Ezekiel 33 is, is the parable of the watchman. And, and I, love, I love the watchman narrative. We, we, we went through that back in January at the beginning of the year. Um, but he, he contrasts something about righteousness. And this is why we have to see the exalted Christ because of what Ezekiel says, or what God says to Ezekiel in chapter 33, verse 12. It says, you son of man, say to your fellow citizens, The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his own righteousness. When I say to the righteous, he will surely live. And he so much trusts in his own righteousness that he commits iniquity. None of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his, which he has committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure eternal life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live and not die. See, Christ Jesus reveals himself as the exalted son of Israel to you and to me so that we can see, we can trust him and that everything we have done is going to be meaningless. It will not stand. Israel's sons, Judah, Reuben, Simeon, they did not need to explain who they were and what they had done. What they needed to do was to trust the one who extended his hand to them. Christ Jesus extends his hand to you. Third thing we see here is that hardship and famine may be part of God's means to draw you and me to himself. See, don't don't be thinking, don't be guilty of thinking that there is hardship in your life because you're not living right. It doesn't work that way. It, It does not work that way. God doesn't reward you just for doing good and punish you just for, just for doing bad. It says there time and time again in Scripture that it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous at the exact same time. But you might be going through a time of hardship and famine because God is drawing you to him and he wants you to turn to him. Not that you've been running in wickedness, not that you've been running rampant, but that he knows that you're going to continue to trust in something other than him until time gets tough. Was Israel's, were his sons banging on Pharaoh's door during the seven years of plenty? No. There wasn't. It wasn't until their time of need got so great that they said, we've got to go to Egypt. And they didn't know where they going. They just thought they were going to the place that had grain. They didn't know they were going to be reunited with Joseph. And maybe you don't know where God is leading you. But if you're in a difficult time, in a difficult road, if things seem to be drying up with you, the first place you turn is to God. Not in a God, why? But God, what can you show me now? 
God, where are you leading me? God, how can I come back to you? How can I walk tighter with you? We, we talked this morning in our college Sunday school class about church leadership and, and the questions that we've got to ask as leaders. I mean, the primary responsibility of leadership is to make sure that you're growing in, in Christ. Whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a ministry leader, our responsibility, first and foremost, is for spiritual growth. So that means that we've got to step back and ask questions of everything we do from vacation Bible school to Fairburn Mission Week to going to Baltimore. Not just, hey, how many people went, but how is this helping people connect Christ in the day-to-day areas of their life? How, how are people growing? And sometimes we get into those lean years in the church where uh, the budget's not meeting. It seems like there are less people in the pews. And we want to look at all those numerical metrics and we forget the question of how are we going back to where Christ is? And sometimes those hardship and famine times in the church help us all collectively to come back and say, you know what, what's God doing? Let's, let's go back to God with this. Struggle is to bring us Closer to God. Do not, hear, 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 hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. Do not let Satan twist the thorn of the root of his greatest lie ever into your heart because you're going through something difficult to say that God does not care. That's what he told Eve. God doesn't care. He doesn't want you to be happy. If he did, he'd let you eat that fruit. He doesn't want you to be happy, so, so ignore the plenty and focus on what's not there. Don't let Satan twist that into your heart. It might be a job, it might be finance, it might be health, it might just be confusion about what's next. Hardship and famine may be part of how God draws us back to himself. Can we come back to him and just rest in his presence? And then we see here, the fourth thing is that reconciliation is central to God's purposes of salvation. Reconciliation is central to God's purposes of deliverance. See, in just a few moments, we're going to gather here at, at the Lord's table. Which is too often in the church forgotten for its intended purpose. It, it wasn't just given that we could have something to do on the fifth Sunday of the month. or It wasn't even given so that we just have something to do each and every time we gathered as some churches do. The Lord's table was given as an opportunity to signify the unity that rests within the confession of faith. That as we take the broken body, as we take the shed blood, as we together as a family from so many different backgrounds, so many different nations, as our Hispanic ministry is taking the Lord's Supper this morning as well, as we have different ages and different ranges everywhere together is our common unity. It's what reconciles us. We're reconciled to God, but we're also reconciled to one another. 
as we, as we come to this table. And, and I don't want you to miss this because this is one of the more significant things that happens in Joseph's self-revelation. Remember, to, remember with me what happened in chapter 43. Joseph saw Benjamin with them. He said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay the animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. What his brothers knew was we left and we had more money than we should have had and now we're in trouble. But Joseph was reconciling his family together. Jesus sat around the table with the 12 disciples. The 12 disciples, even the one that was going to hand him over to be betrayed and said, I'm doing this and serving you because I am laying down my life for you. Go and do likewise. It was to reconcile. It wasn't to be just about grape juice and a cracker. It was to be about how we came together in worship for what Christ had done. And as Joseph brings his family in that last time and says, I am Joseph, your brother, do not be afraid. It was to reconcile the family. It was to reconcile the family. So let me ask you to do something for me as we have a, as a time of invitation. There are going to be some people moving around. I know our deacons are going to get in place as we prepare to serve the, the Lord's Supper. But, but let me ask you, if you're sitting around the table with the Lord Christ Jesus right now, as figuratively, metaphorically, we're about to do, where are you divided? To whom must you be reconciled? This is an offering of praise. This is an offering of our lives together. And is a symbol of unity. Reconciliation is central. We cannot be the effective body of Christ if we are divided from one another. So let me ask you, who, to whom do you need to go? Maybe it's even right now and say, you know what? I've been harboring this against you and you don't even, you're not even aware of it. But I want you to know, be reconciled to your brother. Be reconciled to your sister as we come to the table together. Pastor Lewis is gonna come and lead us in a hymn of invitation. And as he does, I'm gonna ask you, Pray over what God is doing right now.